The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. Okay. I am Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo and Grade 1 Associates. Oh, here's my notes for the back. We'll do some content. We are behind on content. And I've been working all day, and I gotta finish this up. Get home, see the kid, the dog, all that good stuff. What do you guys think of these games today? Some interesting ones. I mean, on paper, the Ravens and the 49ers are clearly the superior teams, but I tell you, any given Sunday. So today, we got three topics. Baseball card shows, then and now. Um, your boxing career, a failed one. Get into that. For those, some of you know, I've tried to be a boxer, and uh, it didn't always work out. And uh, Rocky. And I will tell you, the difference between, hey Mayor Ken, between watching Rocky as a poor child in Ducktown versus Rocky, watching Rocky as a man in the suburbs is pretty interesting. We'll get into that. Chris, Rocky was a thing back in South Jersey. If you were not an aficionado on Rocky and the Sopranos, you were kicked out of the club. You didn't want to get kicked out of the club. You know, it would suck. So, let's talk about baseball card shows. As some of you may know, for mental health therapy, from all my cases, we started a baseball card business. Um, and it was, it is just interesting. It started with misdemeanor money to put into baseball cards and sell them to buy a property. And me, Matt, Jen Kelly, Andrew were involved in this process. And what I've learned is this was a throwback. Here's what I mean. As a child, I sold my baseball cards. Selling my baseball cards was how we bought our first house. I collected the cards. I sold them. And when you sold them, you went to baseball card shows. That was the place where you could get top dollar for your cards. And the card dealers of the late 80s, these guys were assholes. I'm going to stereotype here for a minute. They'd have these tucked in shirts and these suspenders and they'd be chewing on a stogie. And they're trying to negotiate with a kid for his baseball cards. And it was like a battle to wits. How much could you get for that Michael Jordan rookie? And they got to make their profit and this and that. And there was all sorts of aspects that went into it. So now today, as I got into these cards again to throw back, because I said, you know, it's funny. As a child, I sold my cards to benefit my family, help us out to get them. Today, I'm selling cards to buy a property. Like, it's a fun game. And what we've been doing, we're selling on the internet, right? But we've been going to different baseball card shows. And Andrew, who's part of this process, he's at the show today. And I go there for a minute. I've been working all day. Gym early. Then I went to go work. 
Then I went to go tap him out so he could, you know, get a sandwich, use the bathroom, whatever. And it's not a good idea to put me as the seller at a baseball card show. Because all these memories come back to me being a kid. Two things happened when Andrew went on his bathroom break. Number one, this little kid comes up to our table, right? Little guy, like six, seven years old at most. And we had like this bobblehead for $17. It is a $25 item. We're selling it for 17 bucks. And this little kid, he's looking at this bobblehead and like his eyes are mesmerized on this bobblehead. And he goes, excuse me, sir, I have $5. Could I buy your bobblehead? Now I'm looking at this kid. And I'm like, you really want this bobblehead? He goes, yes, I only have $5. And I'm looking, well, here, kid, just take the bobblehead. You don't give me your five bucks. Then this other kid comes up and he tries to sell some cards. He says, you know, um... I want to sell it for this much. And Andrew goes, well, 60 bucks is the most you should pay for these to turn a profit. And I tell the kid, hey, you know, do you want to do 60? He goes, oh, 65. I'm like, oh, sure, here you go. And then somebody else comes by, look at these Pokemon cards. We got these Pokemon cards, like 10 for a dollar. And this kid, like, and his mom, they're going through these cards. And he pulls out a stack of, like, 50. And he goes... Can I give you three bucks instead of five bucks for these cards? I said, you want these? Here, just take them. So Andrew comes back from the bathroom. And he's like, so in the ten minutes that I went to the bathroom, you gave away a bunch of items and you overpaid for cards. I'm like, well, yeah, but I mean, they were kids. And you know, I know it's not good business. I don't want to be that guy. That's negotiating with a child over the price of a baseball card. I mean, thank God Andrew came back. Because I was going to show the kid, hey, you like this, you're going to like these higher items. Do you want to take these? Not good for business. But I mean, I was brought back to like as a child and negotiating with those assholes in the late 80s that were card dealers. And for a minute, in the late 80s, these guys had the world by the balls. I mean, they were dominating, right? And they were kings of the world for a minute. And these are guys that couldn't get laid in high school. They were failed athletes. But now they're king of these cards. And they finally found their moment of cool. And they're taking advantage of these children. They're trying to be part of this industry. I, just, I don't want to be that guy. They also probably just shouldn't be giving stuff away. So it's good not to put me behind the table. I make the investment. Let somebody else handle it. Because I don't want to say no to children. I'm like, this poor kid wanted the bobblehead. Here's the bobblehead. Hell, if he asked me for the Michael Jordan rookie, I probably would have thrown that in. It's not a good thing, the idea. You know, this is why I don't run the business aspect of the firm. Alright, let's talk about boxing. Boxing and Rocky. We'll hit these two topics that are interrelated. When I was a kid, I went to St. James Grammar School. And let me tell you about St. James. Um, St. James was a group of assholes. And I'm not talking about Henry DeHedeville or Skylar Davis. They were great guys. But for the most part, these were a group of assholes. In Catholic school, I will never send my child to Catholic school. I thought the teachers were messed up. 
I thought they create these caste systems, and I am a sickly kid. And I'm coming from the ghetto of Atlantic City to go to St. James. And, um, it wasn't a good time. I got bullied a lot. I got bullied up through, like, eighth grade. One of the biggest bullies was Michael Chait. In my opinion, Michael Chait's face looked like he got hit by a truck. This was an ugly child. What's up, Joey? But Mike couldn't stand me, and he beat me in a fight in eighth grade. And, um, that kind of stuck with me. And I thought the Michael Chates of the world were tough. I thought the John Paxes of the world, the Chris Kramers of the world, the Yasin Wards of the world were tough. No offense, guys, but, I mean, I would learn what tough was. Because Mom came to me in eighth grade, and she's like, hey... We want to save money and move out. We can't really afford Holy Spirit High School. So will you go to AC High? And AC High, for a white kid coming from Willow Avenue to go to AC High, was the third layer of hell. Please don't tell me about what the Ventnor and Margate kids experienced, because AC High was segregated. And it was segregated not only on race, but more importantly, socioeconomic. So being a poor white kid who was small... I literally got the living shit kicked out of me over and over and over again. And the Michael Chates of the world were a joke now. Tell me about the Vaughn Rollins of the world. You think Don Siglin's tough and then you start running into young gangbangers. You start learning that those AC kids are hardcore and the St. James kids were a bunch of pussies, but we're tough in their safe environment. And you start fighting to survive. And I sucked. Right, I was getting my ass kicked all the time, but then I had a set of balls, and I had a set of balls the size of New Jersey. I would be willing to fight. And sophomore year, things changed for me. Dominic Alcaro, the owner of Barbera's Fish Market on Mississippi Avenue, Atlantic City. Dominic was a silver medalist in the 84 Olympics, I believe. A badass boxer. Dominic was one of the toughest people I ever met in my life. And Dominic felt bad. He would see me walk home and always get beat up. And he said to me, kid, I want to show you how to fight. I want to show you how to become tougher. So you do a little work around the fish market, help me out moving stuff around, and I will teach you some things. And this was like a gift from heaven. Because Dominic taught me, I was never going to be a good fighter, right? But he taught me survival. And I developed this amazing right hook and a chin where I wouldn't go down. And this became like this passion. Boxing became such a big thing. My road work and jumping the ropes and working out in the gym so much. And I went from being this total wimp to being someone that could hang a little bit. And that was the key about surviving Ducktown in the 90s as a white kid that lived there. If you can't win the fight, and this became a motto for life, right? If you can't win the fight, can you hit hard enough to make the fight difficult for your opponent? And the Michael Chakes and Don Siglins of the world became like a fucking joke. 
And I was fighting, like, kids that were really badasses. And I lived in the gym. All I did was study and box. And study and box. And, um, I start boxing hardcore. And Dominic was training me, and he was an amazing trainer. And he trained some kids that should have went all the way. But they became victims of our environment. When I say victims of their environment, one kid, Jay, who was one of the best boxers I've ever seen, this kid should have had it all. But he's in prison today. And that was just a byproduct of the ghetto. Luckily, I had Aunt Mary and Mom supporting me emotionally, not financially, because that was a different story. But, you know, I got really into boxing. And Dominic sees me, and I'm in these fights. I'm not doing good. I'm winning a couple. I'm losing a couple. But get my ass kicked a lot. But in the street, it was a lot better for me. The kids in the neighborhood knew I could swing a little bit. And I decided, and this is where people need to learn to stay in their lane. Junior year of high school, that's when mock trial takes off, right? And I want to become a professional boxer. And I am living in the gym. And the purpose of learning to fight was to survive. And Dominic pulls me to the side one day. I mean, I'm in the gym at like 6 in the morning. I'm coming back 6 at night after my homework is done. And like, working out till you puked. And I'm heaving. And Dom says to me, Billy, I want to talk to you. And he pulls me to the side. He goes, I really like you, but I'm going to break something down for you right now. Okay, Dom. Now, at this point of life, I'm looking up to Dominic. I mean, this is a guy that helped me learn how to survive. And, and let me tell you, when things get stressful in circuit court or the Michigan Supreme Court, nothing can ever be as stressful as being a white kid from Ducktown in the 90s. It's hard to shake me up because, I mean, you've seen the third layer to hell. I know what it looks like. And Dominic pats me on the back and goes, you are really trying this boxing thing. You're really laying it all out there. Like, yeah, Dom, I, I want to be good. I want to go pro. I want to do this. I want to do that. Goes, okay. You got this uh, mock trial thing going on. I'm like, yeah. How do I put this in a way that's not going to hurt your feelings? Now, Dominic was not a brilliant man, but he really did care. And what he was about to tell me was supposed to be a nice message, but it really, it was hurtful at the time, but I appreciate it today. Because, Billy, you suck. <laughs> he goes, you got a great right hook. And you could take a beating like nobody else ever saw. He goes, but you're not good. They're the only two things you're good at with boxing is your right hook and your ability to take a punch. Because you don't have good speed. You don't have good power. Because, and you went from being a wimp to being somebody formidable, but this is it for you. He says, you're a cute kid. Because more importantly, you are a brilliant kid. He goes, if you want to get ugly and dumb, keep boxing. You can't keep taking hits to the head and expect to maintain your physical appearance or your intellect. It's just not going to happen for you. Because I think you should keep training 
because it's given you this great self-confidence. He goes, but you're never going to make a living at boxing. He goes, you just suck. And Dominic tell me I sucked. I know he meant well, but that was devastating to me. But I understood a few things. You know, I understood that our way out of the ghetto was not going to be with my fist. It was going to be with my brains. And I'm eternally grateful because when Dom taught me to fight. And let me be clear, guys. I have never been a great fighter. I am not your stereotypic tough guy. But certainly a survivor. I know where to land a punch. I know when to throw the elbow. I know how to shield myself. I know how to scat a punch. I know how to throw a jab. And I got a devastating right hook. These are things that help you survive on your way home to protect your family. These are not things that impresses a boxing promoter. What impresses a boxing promoter is speed, agility, power. And I do not possess speed, agility, and power. No, I suck. But you looked at the Michael Chates of the world versus the Vaughn Rollins of the world, may Vaughn rest in peace, and you learned that the people you thought were tough were really nobodies. And the kids that were tough truly were vicious. And if you can have enough ability to defend yourself, that will help you survive. And my motto in life has always been, if somebody is bigger, stronger, and faster, you charge ahead of them. And that's from Willow Avenue. So boxing kind of ended for me um, beginning of senior year of high school because Dom didn't want to train me anymore. And it was for my own good. And I appreciate that. You got to understand something. My grandfather, Maddie Neary, may he rest in peace, who went by the box name Maddie White, he was a professional boxer. And my grandfather was an absolute badass. Dominic Alcaro was an absolute badass. Billy Amadeo was smart. <laughs> he was not a badass. But having balls and being able to throw a few punches was about survival. And I could never repay Dominic for helping me survive. That's what boxing became to me. Survive. You know? So when somebody is sizing you up, you study them for a minute. And you see how to hurt them if you have to protect yourself. And it's great to have that in your arsenal. But as far as being a stud fighter, it wasn't going to happen for me. But when we talk about amazing fighters, we got to talk about Rocky. And you know, Rocky never gets old. Thank you, Amber. I appreciate that. But you know, the films of Rocky, it's interesting watching them as a child on Willow Avenue to an adult in the suburbs of Ann Arbor. And I'm going to give you perspectives on then versus now. And my Aunt Mare, may she rest in peace. One of the toughest and most brilliant women I've ever met. One of the few things we did as a family that was traditional was we watched Rocky together. It was me, Aunt Mare, Mom, and my grandfather sitting around the living room 
like a normal family. We didn't do a lot of normal family activities, but we would watch Rocky together as a family and be unified. To my grandfather, this was important because one of the things he wanted to bestow on me was the ability to fight. That was important to him. To Aunt Marin, Mom, it was about the poor Italian guy from the inner city who used his way out. That was Rocky. And Rocky won. I'm going to give you my perspective from watching this as a family to watching this today. And the dynamic between Willow Avenue and Washtenaw County is fascinating because the films of Rocky, they are things that simply stand the test of time. And I'm sure when I'm watching it with my son as he gets older, he's going to have a different perspective. Because his mom's intelligent and intellect when you're watching Rocky is interesting. But learned behavior to me, it may be the most powerful thing in the world. And there's not a ton of happy traditional family memories I have. There's just not from Willow Avenue. But Rocky's one of them. So the original Rocky. It's about a poor guy that gets a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to fight Apollo Creed. Poor Italian fighter from the streets. The only thing that's more South Jersey than that would be eating a White House sub having a cherry water ice to wash it down. And as I as I get older, I realize so many things from South Jersey ring true. But there's this one scene in Rocky 1. Apollo has beat the living hell out of Rocky in the 14th round. And Mickey is screaming to Rocky when he gets knocked down, stay down, stay down. And what he's saying is, kid, you've had enough. And Rocky gets up, and I'll post this. Rocky gets up and he looks at Apollo and he says, come on. And you wonder how a man could take such a beating and get back up. And that scene, my whole family, and I'm a little six-year-old kid, and they're all crying. My grandfather is talking and they're crying their eyes out. And I don't get it as a child in first grade. Why are they crying? This is great that Rocky got up. But what is to cry about? And what's to cry about is Rocky was hope. Rocky was hope that we could get out of the ghetto. And I, I can't watch that scene without thinking of Aunt Mary, Mom, and Grandpa in the living room on Willow Avenue. And my aunt's in my ear and saying, don't you remember? Don't forget. You have to get us the hell out of here. And when you are scared and can't do it, think of Rocky fighting Apollo. He went against the best in the world. And he went 15 rounds. And he didn't take any shit. That's what I want you to be, Billy. That was pretty deep for a child. That lesson. Now today, when I watch Rocky, and I, I watch it a few times a year, it's kind of nostalgic, you know? Like, you think back to Aunt Mare and Mom and Grandpa, and it's hard to get emotional when you watch the original Rocky, because 
the movie was great, right? But it's not about the movie. It's about the lessons your family, your poor Italian family in the hood, was trying to bestow upon you as a little child. And I think back to them, and I'm like, wow. So I watch Rocky with, like, in silence. And I know Kara will be sitting there, and she'll be wondering why I'm getting so cry as I'm watching Rocky. And, and that scene where Rocky gets up from the suburbs, you look at it and like, wow, that's pretty good. From the ghetto, you look at it like, this is your chance. Grab the world by the balls and squeeze. Rocky 2, he beats Apollo. And there's spoiler alert too if you haven't watched it. But when Rocky beats Apollo, it is surreal. Because Rocky can't see properly. And he's gone broke. And he keeps getting laid off from the factory and the meat plant, actually. And Adrian goes back to work, and it's almost like you're sitting there with disgusted him. His pregnant wife is working, he can't support himself. And he gets his chance again to fight Apollo. And the impossible happens. He wins the fight. The scene is so powerful when Rocky and Apollo knock each other out. And they're on the ground. And Rocky gets up before the count of ten and Apollo can't get up. And Mickey is basically screaming at Rocky to get up. Like, this is... Mickey, who's a powerful figure, we'll get to him in Rocky 3. Such a mentor. He didn't give up on Rock. And what you learn from that in the ghetto is, hey, anything's possible. And Aunt Mare's in my ear. Don't you forget Rocky beat Apollo. You get us the hell out of the ghetto. No pressure there, right, Aunt Mare? <laughs> I love my aunt so much, but... Watching Rocky with her was emotionally exhausting because the lessons she would impart on me as the leader of the family Where you have to succeed and remember if Rocky did it you could do it Now looking at it from the suburbs and now you're sitting there in your professional station in life years later and thoughts that go through my mind number one Apollo was ahead on points. Why did he go for a knockout in the last round? He could just stay in the way. Number two. Why didn't Rocky embrace the lessons of Mickey earlier if he was going to go back in the ring? Number three. Why didn't he save his money when he got all those commercials? It's a lot that... Like, intellect kicks into emotion. And that's the key here, guys. Lessons from the ghetto. I look at it with emotions. Lessons from the day. You look at it with intellect. And you start breaking shit down. And then you know there's these two parts of you that are alive. And it's frustrating at times. Because I don't know when to turn Willow Avenue off and put Lore Road on. And vice versa. And Rocky, it kind of brings these two worlds together. And lately, I've been embracing my roots more and more. 
with these podcasts, with writings, and with the beach badge, with Pat Tandy and on. Like, you don't run away from who you are, because who you are helped build who you are today, right? Or who you were helped build who you are. But the perception of things, that's what's so amazing about Rocky. In Rocky Three, he loses the belt to Mr. T. And Mickey dies. And Mickey dies simultaneously as Rocky gets knocked down. And you realize at this point, you're going to lose shit in this world. And my lesson from Rocky Three was the realization that my grandfather would not live forever. And Aunt Mare says to me, hey, people die. You have to accept that and move on. And by the way, you gotta get us the hell out of here. Again, that was always a common theme. But when Rocky trains with Apollo, and he changes the type of boxer he is to beat Mr. T, it's kind of less about politics. Politics makes strange bedfellows, right? And you start learning that who you thought was your enemy may be your best friend and who was your best friend may be your worst enemy and it was fascinating that here's Mr. T you would actually like him because he is like Rocky he was the poor guy from the inner city that became champion of the world and Rocky has to turn to the man who gave him this opportunity of a lifetime to relearn how to be great As I'm looking at it today, the intellect says to me, hmm, Mickey had a heart condition. I'm not sure he should have been Rocky's trainer at this point. Rocky should have been smart with his money. I'm not sure what he had to prove by going into this fight with Mr. T. But I sure as hell appreciate that he changed his game to succeed. If there's one thing I've learned about criminal defense is sometimes changing your game is critical. That's what's dynamic about each and every court. The way you litigate in Shiawassee is not the way you litigate in Detroit. And not the way you litigate in Ann Arbor. And not when Scott Grable was sending me to each and every court when there was frustration with the learning process. You go back to Rocky Three. Like, hey, any of us can adapt. You may have to change some things. Speak the language differently. Wear a different amount of clothes. Wear a different color tie. But it's about adaptation. Rocky Four. Apollo dies. And here's Drago. Drago is the immovable force. Nobody can beat Drago on paper. And Drago kills Apollo in a goddamn exhibition match. And Rocky, to avenge his death, is going to go to Russia and fight this badass on Christmas Day. And there's this scene... And I'll try, if I remember, to put this clip up. 
I think I put up earlier, I was thinking about this, but where Adrian says to him, you can't win, what do you got to prove? And Rocky goes, hey, this house, the money, the cars, that's not what this is about. You married a fighter. What Rocky is saying right there is, hey, I can't leave the inner city. I can't be a man. I can't be a father if I don't finish this journey. And Aunt Mare is whispering in my ear. Remember, Rocky beat the impossible. By the way, you gotta get the hell out of this ghetto, Billy. Okay, Aunt Mare. I understand. Every time Rocky's on, you re-mention this. In fact, you do it every day, but okay. Now, as a grown man, and I watch Rocky for few things come to mind. Number one, why didn't Rocky throw in the towel earlier? Apollo clearly wasn't ready. Number two, why was Apollo singing and dancing with James Brown before this fight? Number three, it's hard not to be impressed that he went to Drago's turf and beat him. And that is something magical. Whether you were poor in the ghetto or had money in Washington, what you learned is there's something really sweet about going to somebody else's territory, the ultimate road game, and winning that. That's something that's been universal no matter where you are in life. Rocky Five, it sucks. Because now Rocky has lost everything. Holy, he made power of attorney for some god-known reason. They lose all their money. They're back in the inner city. He meets Tommy Gunn. And he beats Tommy Gunn's ass in the fight. The street fight, which he should have just signed up for a boxing match and made millions of dollars. But Rocky Five, and it was freshman year of high school. It was depressing as hell. And you still watch it, and as you get older, you can appreciate it more. But as a child, at 14 years old, I'm thinking to myself, how did he let this happen? He made it out of the ghetto. And he made it to the suburbs. Just like that, it was taken away. And the lesson in life there, Aunt Mara's like, hey, once you make it, never let yourself go back. Get us the hell out of here. Well, that was emotionally exhausting. Because what I learned from Rocky V as a 14-year-old was, if you make it, you could lose it. And let me tell you something. And believe me, no bullshit when I say this. Anybody who was poor and has broken through the caste system to get to the next level, or the second level, or the third level of socioeconomics. Unless you're lying, every one of us believes we are going to be poor again. We believe we're going to go back. And if you don't believe me, go watch Rocky Five. This was my fear now. This is why I became smart with money, because I'm like, holy shit! You mean I could get us the hell out of here we could end up back here? Uh-uh, no! That was a scared 14-year-old. As an adult today, I look at Rocky Five and I'm like, oh, man. 
He could have taken a couple million dollars, put it in the bank at 6% interest, lived off the interest. Um, if he was going to have that fight with Tommy Gunn in the street, he might as well have just gotten one good contract out of this. You look at Rocky V as a quad, whatever, successful, you want to call me that, as a successful adult, and you look at it with empathy. As a 14-year-old in the hood, you looked at Rocky V with fear. Because it was a reminder, it was that tap on the shoulder that, oh, by the way, <laughs> just because you made it doesn't mean they can't pull the rug from underneath you, so better study that discovery three times. And then Rocky Balboa. Also known as Rocky Six, but called Rocky Balboa. This was interesting. Because after Rocky Five, you had a bad taste in your mouth, right? And you kind of threw in the towel on Rocky, so to speak. No pun intended. But, um... Rocky Balboa, I am on term break from law school. And I was working as a journalist while in law school. And I didn't go home that break. Kind of regret not going home. It was one of mom's last holidays, but I didn't know how sick she was. And I stayed in Lansing to get ahead on my studies and pick up some extra hours as a writer to send more money back home. Unlike many in law school, I was sending money back home to my family in law school, and I cleaned myself out to give them financial protection to go in the law school as opposed to kids that were going home. When I hear kids go home from law school and they get money from their family, like, wow, that's insane. I was sending money home. But um, I go to see Rocky Balboa at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday during term break. Let me tell you guys something. If you never experienced going to the movies at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, that in itself is a goddamn Facebook Live. You gotta see who's going to the movies at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Oh my god! Um, some real interesting things going on there. But, you're watching it, and Rocky had something to prove. And he, there's this emotional scene with his son. And he tells his son how you have to be a real man. I'll post that clip later. That's one of the best scenes from all the Rockies. And now here's Rocky. He's not a millionaire anymore. He's not champion of the world anymore. But he's kind of made a comeback. He owns a restaurant. And he's telling his son that in life, you can't let people push you around. You have to put all your cards on the table sometimes. You gotta go all in. There's that one saying in Rounders. It's like I always told Worm. You can't lose what you don't put in the middle. But you can't win a lot either. And that scene just resonated with me. And Rocky has a really good fight. And you're kind of left with this feeling. The law school me. Like, huh. Okay. If you got talent... You could always refine that talent. That's special. That's unique. As I watch Rocky Balboa today, I think to myself, 
all the marketing, he should have got more money for that fight. He's going to put his body on the line, make sure you get paid properly. I look at it from a business perspective, but I still look at that scene with him and his son, and I'm like, wow. That's powerful stuff that stands the test of time. And when I watch Rocky Balboa, I'm in law school. We live in Batner at this point, right? So I'm not that poor inner city kid anymore. You're, you're like a middle class kid in the quasi-suburbs. And you were looking at things a little differently now. I mean, the fact that you were in law school already, you beat some of the odds. Some of the teachers said you would never make it, so on and so forth. But as you look back now, Rocky Balboa is the one movie of this six-part amazing series, in my opinion, that um, it's more powerful when you come from the suburbs than the ghetto. It's that one. Everything else, it has all these inner-city overtones. And there's a level of fear and despair in each one of them as a child of the ghetto. Rocky Balboa... I think it speaks more to the guy in the suburbs. You could sit back and analyze. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. Now, for those of you in Washtenaw County... Let me start with a little recommendation. Do not go to Trader Joe's on a Sunday unless you feel like getting annoyed or you really are the people watching. And I feel like tons of idiots I don't like knew I would be at Trader Joe's and saw an opportunity just to jump in. I don't know. I, I know it had to be irony, but here we are. So let, let me set the stage a little bit. At Trader Joe's, on Sunday, this is a big day. I mean, people go there apparently to discuss their relationship problems. The college kids got their financial aid check or mommy and daddy sent them some money. Um, people in gear, and I'll explain it in a minute, are trying to protect themselves. People are fighting for carts. And these are people that wouldn't fight if they were punched and spit in the face. But inside Trader Joe's, they get, I guess we call it vegetable muscles, like beer muscles, I don't know. A very weird group. And it starts, and I just, I listed several of the people that I ran into. I'm not going to mention names, I'll give circumstances. But wow, what the hell? So I'm in the gym this morning. I just got back from a funeral, and I'm in the gym, and I text Kara, like, hey, can you need anything before I come home? I'm going to stop by the office for a minute. <clears throat> she says, hey, can you stop at Trader Joe's? Now, right there, I cringe. She loves stuff from Trader Joe's. I'm going to accommodate, but uh, this is the last place I want to be, because weird stuff always happens to me at Trader Joe's. Now I'm in sweats. I didn't shower. I'm just going to run home and shower. Weird stuff's going to happen. And I guarantee I'm going to run into people. And I do. First person I run into is a cop. 
a cop who I can't stand. And this individual, what I do in these situations, when somebody I don't like is in a public setting, if we have to run into each other, I like do a nod and walk away, or I avoid. There's this new rule, right? You don't have to engage in conversation with people you don't like. And I can't stand this person. They can't stand me. But of course, they come strolling across and talk to me. What's up, John? So, this individual, she yells, You shop here! What the hell? I'm kind of looking, because she's kind of making a scene. And I'm sitting there. Meanwhile, Kara's sending pictures of new things she wants. Okay, we'll get to her in a minute. And I'm just looking like, <laughs> hard to believe. And this woman's going on and on. And I said, you know what? I hope you're saving your pension. What's up, Joe? I And that was a joke about a case, but I'll leave it at that. So then the cop who approached me in public and screamed at me finally catched on to my wit like a minute later. Not the sharpest tool in the shed. Like, doesn't get the joke and then realizes as they're walking away, you're threatening me. All right, enjoy your Trader Joe's. Then a prosecutor walks in. And it's a prosecutor I can't stand. And again, they can't stand me. And they're there with their significant other... And, of course, we come upon the friggin' pumpkin bread. Now, as Kara text the pictures of the pumpkin bread, she doesn't have enough faith in me that I can find on my own. It's fine. I zone in on the pumpkin bread. And Jewel is like, hey, get like ten of them. It's seasonal. We don't want to be out without the pumpkin bread. All right. So, of course, the pumpkin bread, we weren't the only ones in Washington County that wanted this goddamn bread. So they got it high up, and as you guys know, I'm short. So here I am, in my finest clothing, probably not smelling great after the gym, and I'm leaping up to get my wife this pumpkin bread, and not just one, but I'm getting ten. Of course, the prosecutor I don't like and their spouse see this. And they're watching. Surprised not filming it. And they're seeing me, the defense lawyer I don't like, leaping for the pumpkin bread that my wife has instructed me to get. And I'm counting out the pumpkin bread. She won at 10. That means you get 11. Okay? That's true language. And um, the prosecutor says to me, <laughs> You know, Eli Sabbath is a strong supporter of the UAW, and I've heard you've had union involvement. Now, I don't know. Me and Sabbath have had some issues lately, and I'm a big union guy from Jersey, and hearing that he's a strong union person, I just, you know, I'm sitting there like, I was going to start asking questions about how many strikes Eli has been in, and did his family ever lose money during a strike like we did in Lancaster City, but I, I shut up. And I said to them, you should really try this pumpkin bread. My wife says it's delicious. And I walk away. Now, <clears throat> apparently, 
Sunday morning at Trader Joe's, a lot of weird relationship discussions go on. I don't know why, but they do. So Kara continues to send another picture. Um, She sends me pictures of ice cream sandwiches she wants now. I asked her where they're at. She's told me they're in the ice cream section. Very helpful. There's only like four of them there, but that's okay. I'll find them. Um, And I get to the ice cream section. And of course, there's a young lawyer I know there. And he's crying while picking up. He's deciding what ice cream to get, and he's crying. Oh, my God. He's going to want to talk to me. It was Bill. Oh, my God. Hey. How are you? I'm okay. Are you having relationship problems, too? I'm like, what? Why would you think I'm having relationship problems? He goes, well, you're getting ice cream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the wife sent me pictures. Uh, she wanted ice cream. Is that why you're getting ice cream? You're having relationship problems? He's crying. And he tells me the girl he's dating and how she's interested in somebody else and he's trying to win her back with Trader Joe's ice cream. You can't make this shit up. So, he turns me for advice. And and I know he might be watching, so if you're watching, I'm not going to mention your name, but I'm going to tell Facebook what I told you. The first thing I asked was, she don't want to be with me anymore. Does she have any good-looking friends? And he looked really confused. So, but I'll tell you, certain guys out there, you'll get what I'm saying there. Okay, stop. Knowing this individual, I say to him, you shouldn't be losing sleep or wasting your money on ice cream over her. But if you gotta get her something from Trader Joe's that you think's gonna really appeal to her, there's a nice selection of wine over there. <laughs> he looked really confused. Hey, Dave. So, I don't know. I walk away. I get in the, the line. You know, and at Trader Joe's, they hit that bell, ding, ding, ding. And you got to move up your cart. And I'm sitting in this long line. And there's there's a man with a helmet on. And he wants to engage in conversation. At this point, like, my head's in my phone. I want to get the hell out of here. Okay. It's like, so, you come here a lot? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's great Sundays. So I said innocently, "So you rode your bike here?" And he replies, "No." Now he's got a bike helmet on, okay? And we're just staring at each other. And he goes, "Oh, it's because of my helmet." And I'm like, "Yes." And he tells me, "Well, things get a little rough around here at Trader Joe's, so I always come prepared." He taps his helmet. Like, what are you talking about? He told me one time he came to Trader Joe's and he caught an elbow to the head because somebody was fighting him for a cart. Now, I I, I don't know. I'm just, like, 
This is the longest line. What do I say to this guy? I'm like, oh, I help him. I like your helmet. I mean, this poor guy got beat up at Trader Joe's going for a cart. Fire would leave the freaking house, but he's got his helmet on. Okay. As we're in line, there's these two U of M students, and they are double majors. One of their majors is gender studies, but they're also a double major. I want to be clear. Now, you may ask yourself, how do I know this? Well, they kept announcing it. It was like the secret everybody wanted you to hear. And they were like, oh, yeah, I'm a gender studies major and I'm a double major. I'm like, all right, I don't think they heard you down in the frozen pee aisle. <laughs> At the end of the day, um, I got the pumpkin bread and I got the hell out of there. And that was Trader Joe's on a Sunday. Take the lines on the money line. Have a good day. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311.